uh, Luke chapter 14. We'll look at verses 25 uh, down to verse uh, 33. And we'll read those and consider those, those verses. <laughs> Before we read them and consider them, let's pray. Father, as we come to Luke 14, please uh, open up our hearts that what we look at would become spiritually beneficial to us as uh, reminders of what we already know that we need to uh, re-examine in our own lives or if for the first time, um, uh, just uh, open our eyes by your Holy Spirit and encourage our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now great crowds accompanied him, uh, Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts this morning. So, beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, this morning, uh, as we meet Jesus here, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem at the end of Luke 9. He's on his way to the cross. And as he's heading there, there are great crowds that are accompanying him. We don't know the size of the crowd. You could think of thousands, maybe tens of thousands. But uh, in any case, it's a large number of people that have come to follow along with Jesus and be in the midst of Jesus. And he is uh, crowd thinning, as it were, as he gives off these hard sayings. In the midst of this massive crowd, he says some of the hardest things, kind of like the John 6 sayings, you have to eat my flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man or you have no life in you. And here he says, look, you have to hate the closest relationships you have or you can't even be my disciple. And you can imagine that there were a lot of people who threw their hands in the air and walked away at this point. Jesus Christ doesn't offer any candy-coated discipleship, no trickery. It's just Christianity straight up. And here we see it really straight up for us uh, this morning as we look at the passage. And I want us to, to notice just three things things about uh, these verses. Uh, I'd entitle this sermon, The Cost of Discipleship. I want us to notice what is the relational cost, then the intellectual cost, and then finally the material cost. Maybe not the greatest way to divvy it up, but we'll use that. So the relational cost first is found in verses 26 and verses 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this word disciple is one of the key words in the passage. The crowd uh, would have been familiar with uh, Rabbis Hillel and Shammai. They knew what it was to be a disciple, a devoted follower of someone. 
and they would have had preconceived notions about what a disciple was and what the teachers or the rabbis could ask of those who were being disciples. People already thought of themselves as Jesus' disciples. They had Some had called them rabbi or teacher. But as Jesus impresses what it is to be his disciple, not just any disciple, but his disciple upon, upon the crowd as he impresses this upon them, he radically redefines discipleship in a few ways. I want us to notice those. Number one, he gives the crowd the impression that he does not need them for his reputation. Now, great crowds accompanied him. Now, if you, just stop right there. Verse 25, great crowds accompanied him. If you're a rabbi looking for disciples, you've arrived at this point. You're excited, right? <laughs> just like a university, if you start classes on the first day and you go from being non-existent to having a 10,000-member student body, you would call that a success because it's not the university that makes the students. It's the students that make the university. Take the students out of the university, the university goes away. As was common in Jesus' day, if you're a rabbi and you have tons of students, then you're a pretty awesome rabbi. But if you're a rabbi and you have one student, and even that student was hard to find, and they'll be gone next year, and you have no idea who's going to be your next student, then you're not much of a rabbi. But Jesus turns this on its head. He doesn't look at the crowds and say, I've arrived. He doesn't look at the crowds and say, now I'm somebody. In fact, he looks at the crowds and turns it on its head in this way. I don't need you. You need me in a bad way. I don't need you for my reputation. I'm not in this to make a great name for myself in the way that you think I am. I don't need you, but you actually need me. Now that would have been radical. You can, I mean, I just imagine the disciples went to bed at night thinking, what is he doing? Why, why is he sending all these people away? We finally got a huge following. And then he pulls out these, these whoppers, these sayings that are like, Lord, where did you get these from? Why are you thinning out the crowd? Beloved, Jesus came down here looking for followers to follow him. He didn't come down here looking for massive crowds that would simply praise him and uh, make him look like he was great by worldly standards. So that's the first way he redefines discipleship, letting people know, uh, I don't need you. You actually need me. But the second way is that Jesus demanded first place in the life of his disciples He demanded first place. Now, this is radical again. If you're a rabbi, you understand, just like any professor at college does, that if people are coming to get their master's degrees in your program, you have to accommodate that. They have lives outside of your class. They have lives outside of your degree program. They have have families. They have friends. They have social things they like to do. They have hobbies. And so you can't fill their lives up with 100 hours of stuff to do, or they'll drop out of the program. Your program will go nowhere. But Jesus says, look, you actually have to hate all of your other priorities. Now, if you're going to go after the jugular vein in his culture, the, the, the real linchpin in the midst of Palestine, what are you going to go after to, to really get at somebody's loyalty? Family, father, mother. Oh, the Jews knew all about honoring your father and mother. You have to hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters, even your own life. And if you don't, you don't even have the ability to be my disciple. You can't do it. You can't be. That's, that's it. It's that simple, beloved. Now, this word hate sounds weird because we're supposed to love our, our neighbors. We're supposed to love people around us. We're supposed to honor our parents, etc. So how does this fit in? Well, the word hate, it's, it, you could argue, is a Hebraism. It's simply another way of saying if you looked at 
your love for me in comparison to your love for them, it would look like hate in comparison. In other words, you need to love me so much. I need to be number one so clearly that if you examined your love for me in relationship to your love for them, your love for them would look like hate. They need to be subservient to your relationship with me. Family cannot be number one. Your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters, they cannot be number one. I need to be number one. They can be somewhere else down the list. Beloved, this is a high call, high call uh, of discipleship that the Lord Jesus Christ lays upon them. Now, I, I recognize that as Jesus is talking in Palestine, so I'm talking in Pella, which is a community that holds up biological family. If you have family in Pella, if you're from Pella, uh, you probably have a lot of friends and life can be easy in Pella. If you're from the outside, you don't have anybody in Pella that you know, this can be a kind of a lonely place, maybe a place that's even hard to find friends uh, if, you're, uh, if you've undergone that because we love family here in, in this local community. And it, it's one of the local idols that we tend to worship. So when Jesus calls us to love him more than we love our family members, that can sometimes be a difficult pill to swallow. In fact, he, if we love family more than we love Jesus, some of us might not even see that because love of family, just is, it just comes naturally if we're from this area. But Jesus Christ in the midst of Pella says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to love me more than you love your family. You have to love me more than you love your spouse, more than you love your kids, more than you love your parents, or you can't be my disciple. Jesus is saying, in other words, look, I'm not going to play second fiddle. I'm not going to play second trumpet. I'm either first chair or I'm no chair. I'm either all the way in or I'm all the way out. Either I'm Lord of your life and you worship me alone or we're, we're not even in this game. And he uh, redefines it as well by saying, even your own life in verse 26, which again is, is through the roof. Teachers could not demand this of students. No teacher or rabbi would demand this of a student. You'd clear out the classroom. And Jesus says, you have to hate even your own life. Now, this may be the biggest of all, especially for Americans. Because in America, you can trample a lot of, 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 in our life. But if you trample our dreams, our plans, what we want to do with our life, our independent way of living, all of a sudden we have a problem. That doesn't go over very well in America where we celebrate uh, Independence Day. And Jesus is saying, if you're not willing to sacrifice your hopes, your dreams, your plans what you think your life ought to be about and put those subservient to me so that I'm number one and you use your life to serve me rather than serve yourself. If you can't do that, you can't be my disciple if you're not willing to hate even your own life. So here's the call. For those of us who are young people, what this might look like with some young Christians uh, living uh, the rest of your life, serving the Lord Jesus Christ so that everything you plan is always with him in mind. Where are you going to go to college? What are you going to major in? Where are you going to live? What are you going to do? The relationships you establish. It's not just for young people. It's for all of us as well, beloved. Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, then everybody you're related to, and everything that you hold dear, all of your dreams, all of your hopes, everything you wanted your life to be about, all needs to come under my care. And you need to ask this question, how can I use these relationships and how can I use my hopes and dreams to serve him rather than to serve me? Radical reorientation, beloved. Everybody in the world, we by nature outside of Christ, we say, how can I use everybody around me in my own life to serve me? 
And Jesus says, that's not going to happen. If you want to be my disciple, you have to figure out how you can use your relationships and your own life to serve me above all. And then we can be his disciples. But maybe the biggest way he redefines discipleship is this, is with one word, it's just a bombshell in the midst of it. Cross. Pick up his own cross and follow me. I don't know what people in the crowd are saying, but this would have been huge. This would be like dropping a bomb in the midst of the crowd. We really have no modern day equivalent of saying this. The closest we can come is maybe the Lord Jesus saying, look, you want to be my disciple? Then put on your bright orange death row jumpsuit, put your hands in shackles, and follow me over to the electric chair. That's maybe the most humiliating thing we could come up with. But even that's a level of dignity. We talk about how to treat people well who are on death row and going there. But if you were picking up a cross, nobody thought about treating you well. People weren't thinking about your human dignity. People weren't thinking anything along those lines. Why is the word cross so astonishing? Why is what Jesus calling his followers to is so astonishing? For a few reasons. Number one, upper class Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion. Crucifixion was for the poor, the slaves, the scum of the earth. They were considered less than human. When we hear cross, we might think of redemption, but when they hear cross, they thought of shame. They thought of the, the bottom of the world, if you're going to call someone to pick up their cross. Cicero, the Greek philosopher, had a really famous saying, decent Roman citizens shouldn't speak of the cross because it was unfit for them to even ponder that kind of murderous death. The cross was a four-letter word in that day. Horrible. You don't mention it in certain societies. The second uh, reason it's so astonishing is crucifixion had a set of fixed stages in the Roman world. There was a trial. You were condemned at the trial. The majority of people who were condemned to crucifixion were flogged. Usually they're, they're ripped open to shreds. Many of them died of, of shock, actually, from, uh, from blood loss before they were crucified. There was uh, uh, charges were usually written down somewhere and placarded around the person's neck just so that everybody could read the charges against them. And there was no sympathy from onlookers only harassment. Even if you did sympathize, you would almost never verbally express it because if you did, you might be the one crucified next to them. So there was harassment from those people who watched those who were condemned to crucifixion. And the most startling reality of crucifixion was this, the impending death. No one picked up a cross thinking, hey, maybe they'll let me off. Maybe I'll get out of this well. Maybe they'll change their mind. No, the verdict's in. You're wearing the charges around your neck. You've got this log on your back. You carry this cross, you're going to die. And Jesus did not say, help me carry my own cross. Did you notice what he said in the passage? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In other words, Jesus is is not calling people to come along and sympathize with his suffering. He's telling people to jump into the midst of it and suffer themselves, or you can't be my disciple. Oh, this is a game changer, beloved. Now, Now we have to love him above everything, and we have to suffer. That's what it takes to be his disciple. That's the high level, and that's exactly what he's calling us to, beloved. You mean all the shame that this looked like in the Roman world. We have to look like this. We have to be willing to suffer this. We have to walk through this, be as shamed as our leader. That's exactly right, beloved. If you were in this crowd, you might have said, you want me to do what? 
this looks ridiculous. There's nothing small about what Jesus is saying here, beloved. I want us to just pause for a moment and, and consider under this first point that discipleship does require a cross. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it really well in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said this, To endure the cross is not a tragedy. It is the suffering which is the fruit of an exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. When it comes, it is not an accident, but a necessity. It's the suffering which is an essential part of the specifically Christian life. It is not suffering per se, but suffering and rejection, and not rejection for any cause or conviction of our own, but rejection for the sake of Christ. If our Christianity has ceased to be serious about discipleship, if we have watered down the gospel into emotional uplift, which makes no costly demands and which fails to distinguish between ordinary existence and Christian existence, then we cannot help regarding the cross as an ordinary everyday calamity, as one of the trials and tribulations of life in general. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. The cross is something that you and I must bear, beloved, if we're going to be Jesus' disciples. Not just pick up on the day we were converted, but all through life. Pick up our cross daily, as he says in Matthew. Something that will carry around us uh, uh, until the day that it is he calls us home. Something else to consider is that discipleship is shameful, humiliating. It really appears crazy. If you were going to pick up your cross and follow Jesus to Jerusalem, you weren't in the cool crowd. It's not Look, society would say, wow, these are, these are just awesome people. They're the cool people, and I want to be just like them. No, if you pick up your cross, beloved, you're going to look really bad. People are not going to be, want to be around you. They're not going to want to be part of this. They're going to look at this and say, you, you're, you've lost your mind. This is now crazy. This is going a step too far. Beloved, that's exactly what Christ is calling us to. He suffered and died on a cross. And now he's saying, look, don't simply walk by and watch me pick up my own cross. You pick up yours. Pick it up. If you want to follow me, carry that thing. It's not going to feel great. It involves suffering. People may scorn you for it, but what's more important, me or what the world thinks of you? Whose agenda is more important, mine or yours? Whose kingdom are you building? My kingdom, which will last forever, or your little kingdom, which will last for maybe 70 years, and then you'll hand it off to somebody else, and you'll never see it again. Beloved, what Jesus calls us to here is stark, very important. But I want us to consider some good news in light of this. Jesus underwent every aspect of discipleship. He calls us to pick up our own crosses, but he's calling us to pick up our crosses while he's on his way to Jerusalem to pick up the cross that we can't pick up. The one that he was too weak even to carry up to Golgotha. The one that he would be hung on, but not for his sins, not for suffering that he deserved, but for our sins and for the suffering that we deserved, for the punishment that he took in our place. Beloved, he bore this cross. He knows full well how painful discipleship is. He knows it infinitely more than you and I ever will know it. Because he picked up a cross and he carried a cross, our crosses as it were, his cross given him by the Father that we could never pick up. You and I could never endure the wrath of God in time and say it's finished, it's exhausted. Not even possible. We're not even worthy to do it. So beloved, Jesus intimately understands what he's calling us to. And I I would say this, another way of saying it is this, Jesus will never ask you to do anything more than he's already done. Never. Never. 
He never will. Pick up your cross, but he's about ready to bear the ultimate cross. He made God's glory in our salvation of greater priority than his earthly family. That's something else to consider. He knows, he knows what this means. Remember he said, I come to bring division, not peace but a sword that cuts right through families. Beloved, he knows what it was to forsake his own earthly family. Mark 3.21, he went home and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. They thought he lost it. I love the passage in Matthew where it says, Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry forsook Nazareth, forsook it. Strong language, real language, turned his back on his upbringing, his family, all of his life there so that he could go into public ministry. Beloved, Jesus knows the pain of what this means. You're going to follow me, family second. You're going to follow me. Everything else is second priority. I'm number one. You might be asking, how can I know if I believe? How can I know if, if, if this is real and genuine? You, here's Here's one of the ways that, that we're tested and, and, and shown to be genuine. It's by how we deal with hardship, how we deal with difficulty, how we deal with this suffering and pain. Does it drive us closer to Christ and get us walking even faster and more straight and narrow? Or does pain and difficulty and suffering in our lives, which is the cross, God's way of bringing this into our life, does it bring us away from Jesus? Because, beloved, if you're a Christian and you encounter difficulty and suffering and hardship, it will drive you to Christ. It will bring you closer to him when it's all said and done. I love the portrait of uh, a pliable in, uh, in, oh, I can't even think of the book, John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. There we go. Uh, as he leaves the city of destruction, he makes it as far as the slew of despond. There's the cross right there coming to bear upon his life. And he looks at Christian and says, is this the happiness you've been telling me about? If we have such miserable misfortune as this at the beginning of our journey, what may we expect before we reach our journey's end? So he went back. That was the end of his journey. The cross came into his life, difficulty, suffering, pain to get to heaven. And he said, I'm not in this at all. I'm done. Beloved, the Christian keeps plodding away. We've got to get rid of this burden. We've got to go see Jesus. We've got to keep making it. So, beloved, what do trials do for you? Do they draw you closer to Jesus? Then praise God. That's exactly what they're for, the suffering that we're called to endure. John MacArthur said this, and with this, we'll go to the second point after this. There are many people who would come to Christ if it didn't cost them their relationships, if it didn't cost them their dreams. You hear people today say, oh, you know, come to Jesus and he'll fix all your relationships. He'll make your life happy. Come to Jesus and he'll fulfill everything you want, whatever you can dream, whatever you can scheme, whatever you think your plan and your purpose and your reason for existence in the world is. Jesus will make sure you fulfill all those dreams. Those are all deceptive lies. It's not about Jesus giving you what you want. Would you come to me, he says, if it costs you all your plans? Would you come to me even if it costs you your very breath in this world? That's how you can determine how desperate a person is to be forgiven, how important heaven is. The Christian gospel is not offering heaven on earth. We're offering heaven in heaven. In fact, you can become a Christian in this life, and it might cost you your family, and it might cost you all your dreams and desires, but the Lord has something better. And it might cost you your life, but a far greater weight of glory is offered to you, eternal life.
Well, the second thing I want us to notice is the intellectual cost, probably a bad way of putting it, but uh, take a look at verse 28. So we have, uh, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, for us in Western society, this might not seem like that big of a deal. We're not really an honor-shame culture. But if you're going to build a tower and you don't finish it, you lay the foundation and find out, we're over, look, we're over budget. We don't have time to finish this thing. Um, and, and your neighbors would end up laughing at you, saying, this guy began to build, but he couldn't finish it. That would be totally destroying. That would destroy not just you, but your family's reputation and your own legacy. So this was very meaningful in Jesus' day when he was saying this. And notice what he says. He's not saying anything for or against building the tower. Jesus does not say, build the tower. He does not say, don't build it. Did you see what he says? Sit down and count the cost. Sit down and consider it. He doesn't, he doesn't say, build it. He doesn't say, don't build it. His point, he tells us his point, which of you would not sit down and consider the cost before you even build it, before you even start, just pause for a moment, take a long, deep breath and look down the gauntlet of everything that has to be done and figure out, can I finish this puppy or not? If I can, great. If not, then don't start. And then he brings up this other illustration about going to war. So you've got 10,000 men. There's a king coming against you with 20,000 people. And his point is what? Sit down and count the cost. Consider this. Consider what? Can we take him out? Can we win this battle? Maybe we've got 10,000 of David's mighty men equivalents and they can take out 20,000 people. Then go to war and do it but maybe we can't take them out because I don't have very trained men or they're equal and we're outnumbered two to one. We'll then sit down, figure this out, and then go make terms of peace. Send a delegation. Just try and get a truce so that at least you can live. Maybe you'll have to serve this other king, but that's fine. It's better to serve him alive than to be laying on a battlefield dead. But Jesus' point is this. It's what he says in both illustrations. Sit down and count the cost. Sit down and consider it. Figure out what it's going to cost you to do these things. And his point is simply this. You want to follow me as my disciple? Great. Count the cost. Sit down and consider it. Don't just go through the motions. Yeah, oh, this will be easy. This will be not a problem at all. No, sit down and consider that. Because when you talk about a cross which is specifically Christian suffering, when you talk about difficulties, heartaches, the Father chastising those whom He loves, the battle against sin, the battle against Satan, the battle against the world, the battle against our own flesh, our own selves. When you consider these things, it's not going to be some cotton candy filled magical carpet ride on a roller coaster that's just fun and delightful all the way till we get to heaven, beloved. Jesus knows it's not. Which is why he's saying to those in the crowd, if you want to follow me, great. But you better go home and count the cost. Sit down before you just follow. Consider it. I know for most of us here, we're born-again Christians, professing members of a church. So this is a great reminder for us to just consider the cost. I remember reading uh, Rosaria Butterfield's, her book was 
huge in my own life. It was really encouraging. But she was, uh, came into the church, and she was talking to a, a lot of different uh, ladies in the church, and their lives seemed so easy. And she said they were asking her about what she had gone through, and finally she said something to the equivalent of, what, did, what does Christianity really cost you? And don't talk to me about homeschooling difficulties and all this other stuff that, that are minor difficulties and issues. What does it really cost you to follow Jesus Christ? Because it costs me everything. And indeed, beloved, it's helpful for all of us to realize what has following Christ cost us? Or here's a, maybe another way of asking it. What should it cost us, but we haven't been willing to pay up to this point? What should following Christ cost us? What should it mean to us? But up to this point, we've said, well, Lord, it can cost me this much, but not, but not no farther. I'm willing to give this much of my life, but, but nothing more, and don't, don't, don't cross this threshold. Beloved, I don't know what it looks like in your life. You probably don't know what it looks like in mine, but there's a high cost of following Jesus. You can even argue the, the, the cost of a church membership, Christian fellowship, we like to think that maybe we can uh, accomplish Christian fellowship with a meal once a month. Obviously, that's not what we're trying to do when we do it. Beloved, Christian fellowship is really getting to know people, getting to know each other's lives, down in, down in the dirt, down in the nitty-gritty of who we are, how it is we're doing, how we're battling with sin. That, that's a cost, a, an emotional cost, a time cost, an energy cost. Are we willing to bear it? How about the cost of our career? If we follow Christ, all of a sudden the reason we go to work is different, isn't it? Jesus is saying you can't go to work and have that be your number one reason you get up in the morning anymore. You can't be my disciple if that's the case. I'm number one. So why do you work? Why do you get up in the morning? Why is it that you breathe? Is it to serve Jesus? Wonderful. If it's, is it to serve yourself? Then we need to turn around and repent of that because Christ is saying it all needs to serve me. Why do we have families? Why do we love our families? Just for a comfortable life? Just to get a reputation for ourselves? If that's the case, beloved, Jesus is saying, look, that's all wrong. No, you serve your family. You can love your family to glorify me and advance my kingdom. But if it's to serve you, then repent of it. Turn it around. That's not why I gave you a family. So, beloved, I don't know what this looks like, but go home and just count the cost of following Jesus. What's it going to cost you this week? None of us know. What should it cost you? What should it have cost you last week? What should it be costing you right now? But we've been unwilling to pay for it. Just think about these things. Meditate upon them. Talk about them with your families, with your friends, and figure out where it is that maybe, maybe we've been wimping out, just not able to say, Lord, you can have my life, but not the whole thing. Lord, you can be number two, but you're not going to be number one. I'm not, I'm not going to be some Jesus freak. I'm not going to walk around this world with the Jesus label attached to my forehead. It's just not worth it. Too much scorn, too much derision. People might actually think I really believe in him and that I really love him more than anything. Beloved, if that's the cost we haven't been unable to bear, then maybe we're not his disciples. Or maybe we are, but we just need to repent. We just need to turn around. We just need to really sit down and consider again, how much is this going to cost me? What should it be costing me? Well, Jesus is telling the crowd about himself again. Because, you know, from all eternity, he's been counting the cost, hasn't he? What will it cost to redeem these people? Am I going to get down there in the incarnation and just lay the foundation and then walk away? What's it going to take to go all the way to the end? What's it going to take to come down and look like them and to become like them exactly except without sin? What's it going to take to be persecuted, to have death threats, to have my own family wonder what in the world is wrong with me? 
What's it going to take to be rejected by my own? The people, the, the people in the church, the leaders of the church, what's it going to take to have be rejected by them, to have Judas Iscariot betray me, to have Peter deny me, to have all the other disciples flee too after the Garden of Gethsemane? What's it going to take to stand there utterly alone? What's it going to take to be rejected, to have a, a, a horrible injustice at my trial before Pilate? What's it going to take to be flogged, to be mocked, to be scorned as the Son of God? Now, if you and I were mocked and flogged and flogged and scorned, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. We're human beings. We're sinners. We deserve things like this. But here you have the Son of God coming down and undergoing this. Is He going to be able to make it all the way to the end? Can He finish what He started? And what's it going to be like to hang on the cross and to undergo divine wrath from His perfectly loving Heavenly Father with whom He's only known eternal love? Can He make it all the way? Can He finish what He started? Can he build on the foundation that he's about ready to lay? And beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ counted this cost and he considered he could do it and he did it. And he went all the way to the end and he knew what it would take to redeem you and me. So now he turns around to the crowds and he turned around to you and me and says, you want to follow me? Great. Just count the cost. You want to follow me? Awesome. But don't get ready for like 60 years of just unbelievable emotional bliss non-stop happiness filled with smiles that never end. Now you may smile in the midst of suffering. We may, I hope we're smiling in our hearts at least and have great joy in the midst of pain because we know the end. Oh beloved, this life is filled with suffering. Christ guarantees it. Tells us in fact, it's absolutely necessary if we want to be his disciple. We have a cross to pick up. So let's uh, conclude here by looking at the material cost. Uh, Verse 33, So therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now the all that he has could be translated uh, all things belonging to him, whatever makes up who we are. This doesn't mean that we should go now and sell all that we have, but it means we must be ready to do so. You can think of Acts chapter 4. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. So when you become a Christian, beloved, Jesus Christ has access to everything in our life, our relationships, our relationship with our own self, and also all that we possess. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, then what you own may not be number one. Your house, your land, your car, your clothing, anything that you possess, whatever it is that you find valuable or dear. He said, if it's number one, it's not even possible to be my disciple. It needs to be number two or number 200, but it cannot take the place on the throne in your life. It cannot reside there. I alone can reside there. Beloved, we live in a very prosperous society, very prosperous. I'm I don't know what Solomon's life was like. We can read about it, especially in Ecclesiastes. He pretty much tried everything out and had the resources to try everything out. He could try things that you and I could never even afford to even think about or dream about doing. But if he lived in today's life with all of our comforts, my guess is that he'd think this is pretty spectacular, even if he didn't have much. Beloved, whoever dies with the most toys wins. That's our philosophy. But we know that whoever dies with the most toys still dies. They still die and they leave all their belongings behind to somebody else. It's very challenging to figure out, are we using our stuff to serve Jesus? 
or is our stuff using us to serve it? Are we using our possessions to serve Jesus? Is he number one in our relationship with our possessions? Are we willing to give up everything we own just to follow him? If Jesus said, come follow me and I'm going to make you poor, I'm going to put you in a cardboard box on a street somewhere in a large metropolitan area and you can eat at the local food shelter and you'll have eternal life. Would you follow him? Would you do it? Or are we following Jesus because he's given us a lot of material possessions? Because if that's the case, beloved, then maybe we're really not disciples. Jesus is saying you have to be willing to renounce everything you own if you want to be my disciple. In other words, it doesn't own you anymore. It's not number one. It's just stuff. You're a steward of what I give you. And you use it to advance my kingdom, not to serve your own self-centered ends. And who knows about this more than Jesus? He renounced all he had. All the heavenly glory. And he came down here with the fanfare of kings, not even close. Born into a poor family. They offered the poor man's sacrifice for his birth. Beloved, Jesus came down here and entered poverty in Joseph and Mary's family. Renounced everything he had so that we could become rich. Jesus knows what this means. He knows the cost of it. He's actually experiencing the cost of what he's talking about, even as he's speaking in Luke chapter 14. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What do we do with this, beloved? Where are we at in relationship to what we own? If Jesus took it away, would we still have our lives committed to him? If Jesus bankrupted us tomorrow, would we still love him? Is he more important to us than how much stuff we have when we leave this world? If so, then wonderful. If not, then we're not his disciple. We're kidding ourselves. And we need to repent and to believe in him and trust in him. So if you're here today and you think, you know what? This is a high calling from this Jesus. I don't don't know if I can swallow this. Just take a look at him. He bore the ultimate cost. He suffered more than you ever will have to if you will simply trust in him and believe in him. He knows of what he speaks, in other words, and no other God can talk like this. No other God even exists. The gods that exist, if we want to talk about, they can't even speak like this because they don't know of which they speak. But here's the creator of the ends of the earth saying, you know what, I'm going to walk through all of this. I'm going to suffer all of this. And now I turn around and I ask you to follow me. So follow him, believe in him, trust in him. Eternal life will be worth it. Your possessions now won't bring you near as much joy as being in God's presence will for all eternity. Not even close, not even worthy to be compared. For us believers, let's just examine where are we at in relationship to our relationships and everything we own. Are we using it to serve Christ? All of, our, all of our things, are we using our own life to serve Christ? Or are we still in the mode of, you know what, Lord, I want to do this and I'm going to do it. This is my life and this is what I want planned, therefore I'm going to go do it. It doesn't advance your kingdom and I don't even care. If that's the mode we're in, we need to turn around. That's, that's not what the follower of Christ talks like. It's not what he says. And maybe in evangelism we could talk this way. Well, we use our lives to tell others about Jesus. Or do we say, Lord, that's just too much. I don't want to be considered that that foolish Jesus freak person. 
Because, beloved, if we really love Jesus above all, even above our own lives, then we won't care when other people shame us. We won't care if they don't think we're cool anymore. Because all we want to do is with our own life lay it down so that Christ can be number one and he can be exalted. Let's, let's pray.